0: Good morning again. So in 2004, there's a movie that came out that I watched, not in the theaters, but pretty soon thereafter. It's called Man on Fire. Um, Powerful movie, not for everybody, but man, if you want to see Justice and Redemption played out in a movie, there are a few better ones to watch than that one. Um, The the main character is a, a guy named John Creasy, played by Denzel Washington, and he's been hired. The plot is that he's been hired by a rich Mexican family to protect their daughter because kidnappings, especially in, with rich families, are abundant. And so he comes down to Mexico, sort of lost and jaded, um, and not really having a reason for living, just kind of looking to subsist. And a friend hooks him up with this job. And she's a little precious, eight, nine-year-old, little blonde-headed, uh, Creese's ex-CIA. Special ops, he's a bad dude, but bad in a good way, you know, like don't mess with him. And uh, he's better than good at what he does, but again, he's hard and jaded, but he comes to love this little girl, which is sort of the marrow of the story. He comes to really love this girl, PETA. So he's charged with protecting her. Well, he's ambushed by this gang, a ton of them in 20, 30, 40, come out with heavy artillery and machine guns and just, they kidnap her. But barely, I mean, he, he takes down a bunch of them, but he gets shot and, and left for dead. But he, they thought, they thought he was dead, but he actually survives, and he has a fairly long recovery. But after he gets better, his one mission is to get this girl back. And this, so this is, this is where we find ourselves when the Mexican chief of police is asking John Creasy's good friend, played by <laughs> Christopher Walken, Mr. Creepy, but he does such a good job in this movie, uh, about what sort of guy Creasy is. He's trying to get to know what is driving this guy to go at all costs and get this girl back and just to, I mean, he's blowing people up. He's killing left and right. Um, So the police chief, he asks Walken, he says, what was this little girl to Creasy then that he would kill whoever he has to get to to get her back? And Walken responds with this great, might be the best quote of the movie, this great quote. He puts his Index finger in the air, and he says, "She showed him. Uh, she showed him it was okay to live again." Uh, and the Mexican police chief says, "The kidnappers took that away. Uh huh. And they are going to wish they had never touched a hair on her head." He says, "A man can be an artist in anything—food, whatever." And he's like licking his fingers as he says this, eating something. It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. And he's about to paint his masterpiece. It's a great line. So, and and then literally he says at the end of that, he says, that's all I have to say. (laughs) This last line. (laughs) It's so great. And at that point, from that point forward, the rest of the movie is about Creasy doing just that. Just painting a masterpiece of death. There's one point at which... He sets everything up so perfectly, and it's one man against a thousand, you know, and these are trained killers, and he just takes them down one by one, car by car, house by house, and there's this one point at which he knows that this jeep is coming uh, full of these, full of this, these gang members uh, down this certain street, and so he's, he works he walks up to this second story of this Mexican uh, townhome, and this is this older couple that's in the townhome, and he moves them aside, and doesn't hurt him at all, but he just says, you know, I've got I've got this, to take care of You know, pulls out his, his a bazooka. It's something like that. It's um, a missile launcher. And the guy is this pious old Roman Catholic man, I'm sure, and he says, you know, um, God says for us to forgive. And Creasy, and he's just waiting there for this car, you know. And and Creasy says, Forgiveness is between God and this and this man I'm about to kill. He said, My job is to arrange the meeting. Um but he, he is a man on fire, and that's why I wanted to bring him up, because I know it might not have seemed like it in this, in this text that Austin read that Paul closes this wonderful, high Christological book of Colossians with, where it's really just a bunch of, a roll of names and some last, some parting instructions to this church. But we see here, if we take a close look at the text, that Paul is indeed, he's a man on fire. He is a man on mission and we ought to be a people on mission. So we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about that together and looking at, looking at why Paul is so conflagrated, so burned up with the mission of God because of what Christ has done. So the first point, two points today, is Paul's final instruction. Through six here, Paul's final instructions. So this is his, in this high, book of high Christology, these are his last instructions to this church. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says is, he says, pray steadfastly. That's the very first thing he says. And if, you, if you've looked at our values as a church on the website, it's, it's something that we aspire to even more than something that we are yet. But it's the, our value is to be a people who pray, to be a praying people. We want to live into that. Um, but Paul, it's the, it's the first thing he says in this close. He says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, persevere in prayer. Pray constantly and pray with all your heart. Pray with determination. Pray doggedly. In other words, you're going to want to stop praying. And any of you that have done any work at all praying know what I'm talking about. When you pray, you want to stop praying, sometimes almost immediately. Um, It is hard work to pray. Um... And what Paul says here breaks down to really meaning, uh, he actually says, sorry, being, being watch, pray steadfastly, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Let's look at that. So the word means being alert or awake, first of all. Um, have you ever noticed how when you pray alone with God in a quiet place, oftentimes you get tired and sometimes you nod off or get distracted, fall asleep? It's happened to me so many times. Do you think that's an accident? No other time, it no, nothing else in my life do I get as consistently tired and nod off as much and lose focus as much as when I'm doing the work of prayer. Is that a coincidence? Or do you think that we might have an enemy who knows that this is our main battle engagement? This is our main work, and he will do what he has to, even if it's just getting us tired. If that's all it takes, if we're in a war, and the enemy knows that he can get us to fall asleep, not only can we not defend ourselves, we can't attack. It's as easy as that. And so if he knows this is our main work, of course he's going to do that. And if that works, then done. So it, one of the things that this tells us is that it reminds us, stay on the alert, because it's not, you're not just walking throughout your life. You're in a war. Yes, that Christ is won, but the, the war is not over, and we have work to do, and the main work is the work of prayer. Um... So it reminds us that we are in a battle. And prayer is our front lines activity. Um, but Paul says, he says, be alert, okay? And not only be alert, but again, back to the battle thing, it also means, okay, be watchful. It means be awake, be alert, but it also means be on the alert. So again, it reminds us that we are in a war. And I forget that. I wake up tomorrow morning, I hit snooze a few times, maybe once or twice more than I ought to. I get up. I spend time with the Lord, I go throughout my day, and I forget this. I forget that I'm in a war, that Christ is one, or he is reigning, but he's a general calling the shots from the nerve center of the cosmos. And I'm to be connected with him through his Holy Spirit by faith through prayer chiefly. And that is my chief word. I forget that. But Paul reminds the Colossian church of that. It's the first bit of sort of parting instruction he gives them. Then he goes on to say: continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, what? End of verse 2, with thanksgiving. We've talked about this. I think this is the fifth time that this appears in this short book of four chapters. It keeps popping up. Be thankful. Be abounding in thanksgiving. It's a reminder that the gas that drives our lives, our prayer lives, everything we do as Christians, is the reality of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for us, the fact that God became a man. And one thing that we focus on during this time of Advent more than any other, is that God became, he was born a helpless child into a poor family in the line of David. He grew up poor and despised. It's a, it's a, it's a scandal of Jesus Christ that he lived the life that we should live, died the death that we deserve on the cross, and, it, and then rose from the dead and conquered death and is alive, and is, and is reigning from heaven, and he will return again. Um, this is what fills Paul's tank. It's what he thinks about constantly. It's what drives him, It's why he's constantly saying, do everything you do. Pray, being watchful, but with thanksgiving. Why? Thanking God for what he's already done on our behalf in Christ, that we're taken care of, we're made secure, we have no more things to worry about, we're on mission. We're to be on fire for him, for his kingdom, driving forward, doing what Beto talked about, being aware, having Christ on our lips. In everything we do, in everything we say, lingering a little longer, spending a little more time, not going home quite as soon, always on mission. At work, resting with our families, with outsiders that Paul mentions later, on mission. But with thanksgiving, having that boiling up in us constantly, man, because of what Christ has done. So this drives Paul. Uh, One commentator says here that thanksgiving ought to leaven, it ought to leaven our prayer. It ought to just sort of... um, Be like yeast that sort of works its way through our lives and our hearts in the way that we speak with God, Um, and one of the things that that does is it just relieves us of the sort of litany, the laundry list of things that we're constantly asked. That I'm constantly asking God for, and and that's okay. God wants to hear from us, and I think that I'm not ready enough to let God know from my heart. Here's what I need, God. I, I I I sort of I I make things sound pretty too much, or I'm afraid to bring this to Him. I think He'll be He'll be tired of hearing from me again. That's not, God is a loving father. He wants to hear from us. But to remember that Thanksgiving ought to leaven our prayers is a relief because it just gets our eyes off of us, and, and it gets us focusing on all that he's given us that we ought to be thankful for, what he's done for us in Christ, all that we have that we don't deserve, the freedom he's bought for us, who he's put in our lives, what he's given to us, and then to praise him for who he is. I remember... Um, when we spent time our last first Wednesday prayer in the library, just for the first 20, 25 minutes we just did, instead of going like praise, confession of sin, thanksgiving, we just went praise, thanksgiving. So the first 20, 25 minutes was just praise and thanksgiving. It was just all thank you, God, and here's who you are, and eyes lifted up, and looking at those around us that he's put in our lives, and it just changed It was so, it was one of the most refreshing prayer times I've had. It just changed the whole time for me. Um, And it loaded my requests with a different perspective. So that's what Paul says here. And in verse 3, he says, um, And at the same time, pray also for us, for Paul and those who are with him, for his companions, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison. Um, What does this talk about? Paul praying that God would open a door for the word for him. Well, in Acts 16, 6 through 10, Paul and his crew are planning on going somewhere, up into somewhere in Turkey, uh, to share the gospel and to preach. They're, they're on a missionary journey. But actually, God, the Holy Spirit comes to them and he says, no. And he stops them. He puts a stop sign in their way. And instead, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man, uh, somewhere north of Greece instead of in Turkey. And the Macedonian man is saying, come over and share the gospel with us, we need to hear. Um, so this appears in Acts, and, it, and it's something that Paul's familiar with, this leading of God, this opening of doors that God does, and a closing of doors that God does. The fact that it's not all the same to God. That's the point. It's not all the same to God. God has the places of our lives patterned for us, lined out for us, laid out for us, and prayer is one of the things that helps us to understand what those are, To understand when to advance through an open door and when to stop when the door is closed. Um, He has places He wants us to go and people that He wants us to meet and preach the gospel to. Um, It's it's why we talk about being so glad that God has planted us, has called us here to this place in West Houston, to the Galleria, because we believe with manifold scriptural evidence, but also testimony that he has called us to this place, that he has people in this area that he wants to come to know him, that he wants us to preach and share the gospel to and love on in the name of Jesus Christ. He has people on your street, in your apartment block, at work, that he wants you to preach Christ to, um, to give an answer to, as they're looking around trying to find meaning in life, when something has just hit them in life to unfold the fragrance of Jesus Christ to them. And you know, that's the story of why we're here. In short, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but if you know any of it, you know that's true. I mean, I was praying specifically you know, two Octobers ago, two years ago almost exactly, um, two years ago. I was praying, Lord, where would, you've called us back home to Houston. You want us to plant a church. I know that. Where in Houston? I know you have a place for us. He led me to one place within 30 minutes of prayer, guys, asking him that very question to this school. And, and the rest is history. I mean, he just laid out for us so clearly that I want you here. I'm calling you to this place and to a people that you've yet to meet. And mo- many of those people and most of those people we still have not met. Um, and so it's not all the same to God. He has a mission for you, for each and every one of you, in your various spheres that he's placed you in. You're, pe- you're to be a people on mission, not just to wake up and go, okay, hum-ho, what am I think- what am I, what's, my, what's on my docket today? But to know that okay, God has a plan for me and to be in tune with him in his word, in prayer, reminding one another as while it is still called today. Through, by faith, through his Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us, we are in connection with the Father. Jesus said, I never say anything unless the Father is saying it. I say what the Father is saying from heaven. And I never do anything unless the Father is doing it. I just do what the Father is doing. Do you think it's supposed to be any different for you? It's not. He is our example. He's our model. Um, And this is what Paul's talking about. It makes every day an adventure because every day is a mission. Every day he has something for you to abide in the finished work of Christ, to be loved by Jesus, to love him back, and then to let his fragrance overflow out of you to the people that you would encounter, to the places that he he would have you go, to be a people on mission. So he says, um, first of all, he says to pray. Then he says, look, um, he says, speak clearly. And I'm actually going to skip over that bit. But he says, I need, I ought to, I need to speak the gospel with clarity. Pray that I would. I'm actually going to skip over that and just roll it into the next thing that he says, which is basically, he says, pray for me because I ought to speak the gospel with clarity. Pray that I would. But also, you ought to what? If you look at verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you what ought to answer each person. So what I want to say here is, we ought to, Paul says, you ought to, in two words, respond evangelically. We ought to be a people who live lives of responsive, responsive evangelism. Let me unpack that a little bit. So he ought to speak clearly. We ought to respond evangelically. Um, okay, Dick Lucas, who was a longtime pastor of a church right in the heart of the working district of London. He was a, the church is called St. Helms, Helenship's Gate. He was a sort of mentor of, of Tim Keller and is finishing his, his race now. He's quite old. Um, but he says this about this passage, and I, and I tell you a little bit about who he is because he's British, he's quite British, he's quintessentially British, and I think that I would head a little bit of what he says here because it's a bit British, which is fine, but um, having spent four years in Britain, I feel like I can say that, but it's um, maybe a little too, a little too uh, careful not to offend, um, not to be on the offensive because, uh, partly because of the culture, partly because that's the Southern English way, and, and, and Dick Lucas is, is, is quite an Englishman, but also I so respect him and his insight into the scriptures that I want to read this. Here's how he unpacks this bit, and I, I hope this will be helpful to you. It was to me, okay? But take it with a small grain of salt. I'm not saying not to be on the offensive for Christ, but listen. Paul says, I ought to speak clearly, to engage, to proclaim the gospel, but he says, for you, Christian church, Colossian church, for you, I want you to be to respond with an answer, to respond, to always be ready with the gospel. Dick Lucas says this, we may describe the difference by saying that while the apostle looks for many opportunities for direct evangelism and teaching, the typical Christian in Colossae is to look for many opportunities for responsive evangelism. If this distinction is a correct one, it immediately commends itself by its sanity and realism. Harm can be done by sincere believing people who feel compelled to, to preach and testify to those with whom they mix in shop or office. Rightly aware of the importance of their message, the sad ignorance of many of their neighbors, as Beto was mentioning earlier, and the urgency of the times, they plunge in bravely, whatever the temperature, but but direct assault on entrenched apathy, to change the metaphor, is seldom successful and can never be carried out by normally sensitive people. That's quite British without great cost to nerve and confidence. Alas, one consequence of failure in such verbal witnessing is a discouragement sufficiently severe at times to lead to disengagement from this part of the battle altogether. Let me keep reading. This is the only block quote in the sermon, but I think it's worth it. Hang with me. He says, Now Paul's advice to the Christians is not along the lines of possessing oneself of better techniques with which to approach people. Rather, he turns the problem right around so that the Christians can see their responsibilities in a much more promising light. Get this, their privilege, simply put, is to answer everyone. That is to say, they are to respond to the questions of others rather than initiate conversations. I said take this with a grain of salt. Sometimes you are to initiate conversations on leading topics. They are to accept openings rather than to make them. He's gleaning from this passage, perhaps as a rule. This is emphatically, he's careful to say, This is emphatically not to sound the retreat. Paul evidently believes that opportunities for response and explanation are to be found everywhere. For everyone is looking to discover answers about life and its meaning. Paul evidently thinks that believing Christians should be found everywhere too, ready to take up these frequent opportunities. It's obvious what strain this removes from conscientious Christians, the pressure to raise certain topics and reach certain people can make it difficult to live or talk normally. Have you ever met that Christian who's always trying to get the gospel in, just you know, regardless of what the, where the conversation's going? It's just, it doesn't quite fit, and it, it doesn't always necessarily have to. But he's saying maybe there's a better way. Maybe Paul's leading the Colossian church to, to understand that his call and his job and his mantle is to proclaim the gospel. That's what God's called him to do. But for most of us to have an answer, to be ready, to respond, always with wisdom, with circumspection, with judiciousness, ready, on our toes, as it were, looking, praying, listening to what the Father would be saying, waiting to see what the Father is doing, right? But by being ready and willing to respond, the way is open to a more serene, excuse me, I I skipped something that I need to read. Um, It is obvious what strain this removes from conscientious Christians. Um, okay, in any case, we go to the office to work, not to evangelize, okay? That's not to say we should not evangelize at work, okay? But we go to work, but by being ready and willing to respond, the way is open to a more serene and successful, again, very British, approach to each day's opportunities. It, it opens the way to, for a greater dependence on God's leading as well as for a more relevant and sensitive witness suited to each individual, and remember, when the outsider has chosen the time and the place and the subject, how wonderfully free is the Christian to open his mouth and tell the good news of Jesus. And sometimes, as we looked at Jesus doing this in John 3 with Nicodemus and then in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, sometimes we, it's, to, it's up to us to be listening to the Father, what are you saying, Father, to their heart, what are they saying, what are their needs, to redirect the conversation, right, right? So, to be on the offensive in that sense, um, Os Guinness talks in this vein. He's a, a British, he lives here in America near D.C., and he's a, he's a British apologist, uh, Christian apologist, and speaker, and writer. But he, he talks about the gospel burp, or the gospel belch. He's like, sometimes you just see this person who who doesn't have a sense of response to evangelism, and who instead thinks his or her, responsibility to just every person here she meets to just share the four spiritual laws no matter what the temperature just to plunge right in as it were um, and so Os Guinness calls this the gospel belch or the gospel burp and it's like every time it's the same thing it's just a, you know it's the same gospel the same way no matter what the situation is no matter what the person's needs are but if you look at Jesus right he shares the gospel differently in different ways with different words with different actions depending on what the Father is saying, depending on the needs of the person, depending on the situation. And I think part of what Lucas and Paul is saying here is we ought to be the same. It keeps us in a greater sense of dependence. Instead of depending on the four spiritual laws, and I'm just going to blap, we're dealing with eternal, sensitive, searching people here. And yes, yes, to to understand that, not to say, hey, I just don't want to offend, never to say that, because the gospel will offend us. If it saves us, it will first offend us to death. But... To look to share uh, with wisdom, with salt, which both preserves and, cu- and flavors um, our speech. And secondly and finally, regarding Paul's injunction, which echoes Jesus' to have our speech seasoned with salt, as I just mentioned. The ESV Study Bible, and if you don't have the ESV Study Bible, man, I'd highly recommend getting a copy. It's, it's a wonderful tool. It says that this quote suggests speaking in an interesting, stimulating, and wise way. I think of Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, who spent some of his last years at Princeton as a scholar, and he said, uh, he said you know, every Christian ought to have a Bible on one knee and a newspaper on the other, um, just to be aware of what's going on, to be looking to speak Christ into the situation at hand. Um, Paul's comments in verse 5 assume that the Colossian believers are vitally involved in the local community. What? walking with wisdom toward what? Outsiders. Assuming that we're going to be rubbing shoulders constantly with what Lewis in Weight of Glory calls either um, eternal splendors in heaven or immortal terrors in hell. We are every day passing by eternal creatures that will spend an eternity either with God and fellowship with Him through the work of Christ or in hell with His just wrath upon them because they chose to reject Christ, to ignore um, or Perhaps we're never told of Christ at all. Um, you know, and this, this, uh, this part of, of, of Paul's injunction especially gets my attention. The fact that he's assuming that as Christians, we are constantly not only around outsiders to the faith, but cultivating those relationships and looking to speak, to love them well and to speak Christ to them winsomely. Um, before we went to Edinburgh... We, didn't, we were pretty much just with believers all the time, and it's easy for, for a pastor to sort of get into that rut. Um, but once we got to Edinburgh, it was, it was there that we realized that was the case, because uh, we were ministering largely to, to international students, and specifically to Muslims, mainly. And um, we just realized how refreshing it was, and how challenging it was, and how new it was. And we realized, we don't have a lot of non-Christian friends back home. And it's so good for this to be our job. To, to, to have to, as it were, reach out to those that don't know Jesus. And we, we realize we never want to not be in this place again. And this is what Paul's saying here. And for most of you, that's not the case because you go to work. Uh, and most of your work atmospheres tend to be people that don't know, a lot of people that don't know Jesus. Um, but if that's not the case for you, I encourage you to, um, to follow Paul's injunction here. The last, one of the last things he says to this Colossian church. To, um, to know how you ought to answer each person, to walk with wisdom toward outsiders, okay? Um, and then he says this in verse 5 again, making the best use of the time. Just a few observations here. One, the time is short. It's one of the things that Paul implies here, okay? Our time is short to live with the understanding that today might be our final day, that regardless, our end is coming soon, and Christ will return. And he's given us a short amount of time, our most precious commodity, Um, So our time is short. Uh, Live like you have just today. Plan for tomorrow, um, but don't count on it. Live in light of having a short time. And secondly, uh, there's an implication here. When he says making the best use of the time, there's an implication not just that you can make bad use of the time God's given you, because we're all stewards of the time God's given us. We're not owners of it. He is going to require it of us when we stand before but how did you use this precious thing that I gave you called time? Did you use it for yourself did you, or did you, use it living, did you use it living in light of the gospel on mission for me and for what I've done for you through my son? Um, not only that there's a bad use of our time which I think all of us get that but that there's a good use of our time but not the best use. Paul doesn't say making good use of your time here. He says make the best use of your time. And you know, it reminds me of the words that Jesus spoke um, to Martha about Mary, who was sitting at his feet, not doing good work in the kitchen serving, but doing the best thing. He said, there's really only one best thing, and that's being with me and being before me and just soaking me in. And everything else, if we seek first Christ and his kingdom, everything else is going to be added to us. That's a promise. Um, And you know, I just finished an amazing book. I would highly recommend it, called *The Boys in the Boat*, about a, uh, a University of Washington crew team, nine nine boys uh, who young men who won the 1936 Berlin Olympic gold in crew. And there's this thing that the author says toward the end of the book. He's talking about one of the final races, and he says the worst thing in crew that you can do, even worse than tipping over right in a race, is to is to finish a race. With gas left in the tank, with energy left to spare, and not to have won that race. And I just thought, man, what a wonderful picture of how we ought to live our lives. Just giving absolutely everything, being on fire, being on mission, burning up with this mission that God has put to be Christ, to share Christ, to glorify Him by enjoying Him, and to let that fragrance pour out of us and color everything we do from prayer to our thoughts, to our actions, to the way that we love. Um, Just a few things as time's running out, just a few things. There are a lot of things that I wanted to say, but I'm not gonna. So that was Paul's final instructions. Verses 7 through 18 to the end of the book, he says, after giving these final instructions, he kind of says his final goodbyes, point two, last point. So just a few things on that. Um, I'll just make a couple comments and then look at a couple people. But um, if you notice here, Paul's like a general conducting a war from his war room, and his war room is a prison. What does he say at the, in the last verse? Remember my chains. Homeboy is chained to a wall, and he's still blowing it up right in these letters to the church that affect the entire world, and that I'm still talking about, we are still talking about and preaching about, and, and, and lives are being changed by today. Homeboy is irrepressible. You can't stop him because he's on fire. He's on mission because he gets what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. He understands that our suffering through the cross of Christ and through his incarnation has been made a stick of dynamite. Okay? Christ has made of our suffering and our loss and our pain a stick of dynamite that has power, explosive power for spreading the gospel and establishing God's kingdom. And that's what he he talks about. He talks about working for God's kingdom. He gets that we are working not for ourselves but for God. We are kingdom subjects. Um, and he mentions real people Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas's cousin, Jesus called just, Epaphras. List goes on and on. He gets that ministry is about people with eternal souls and stories with pasts and with eternal futures, whether either in hell or in heaven. Um, and I've already mentioned that quote from Lewis, but understanding people in light of who they are and who God has made them, that they're lost and that there's only one way to enter into life, and that's through Jesus Christ. It just, fire, it just It just, burns, it ought to burn us up, and we see that as Paul mentions these different people. He's just telling this person and that person, go here, do that, this guy's coming back to you. Um, and I wish I had more time to talk about all the things that he says, but I don't. So let me just pick out a few choice gems from, from Paul here. Um, let me finish with a couple people and then I'll I'll bring it back to what I started with, with man on fire. So, so he mentions uh, Luke, and he mentions Demas, verse 14. He says, verse 14, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, and he goes on to talk about the Laodicean church and others. This is a really a study in contrast, okay? Every single person he mentions has a story, but Luke and Demas, it's a study in a short verse of contrast. Luke, the beloved physician, was a, a a doctor, a medical doctor, who went on, in fact, was probably at this time writing and may have just finished or was finishing within the next year or two or three max, was finishing the Gospel of Luke. It's the longest of the Gospels. And then he also wrote the book of Acts, which is our only inspired uh, Breath of God book in the canon on the early church. Okay? The rest of the, the books after that are letters to the church about how to live in light of what Christ has done. But we see a window. Luke writes Acts as a window into what God is doing in his early church. And he, and he writes Luke. Um, and he uh, wrote, therefore, with Luke and Acts, more of the New Testament than any other person, even more than Paul. Um, so long are those two books and so rich. Uh, Luke gives us most of our parables. So he was faithful. Luke was faithful to understand his mission and his call and to walk it out and to live it out to the end. Demas... On the other hand, here he's clearly in good standing. He's clearly commended by Paul. But if you fast forward five years to 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter that he writes before he's executed in Rome, he says um, that Demas, he says, Demas has deserted me because he has fallen in love with this present world. This is a tragic phrase and I pray that it would never apply to any of us. Demas falls off, as it were. He does not finish well. He says this exactly, to quote, I didn't know if I had it. For Demas, in 2 Timothy, he writes, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, You cannot love both worlds. We live in this world, and it is always trying to put its hooks into us. But would we be a people that are absolutely obsessed with Christ and his kingdom and driven by that because of what he has done for us, because of what he has brought us into. And would our lives only make sense in light of that, in light of the gospel, in light of God's kingdom, in light of our mission? Would that we would be a people on fire, finishing well like Luke and not like Demas. The man in the Bible, as it were, perhaps, David. The wisest man in the Bible, Solomon the strongest man in the Bible, Samson, none of them finished well. Matt Baker, Austin's dad, is fond of saying, almost everyone starts well. It's easy. Hardly anyone finishes well. Would that we could be a people who could finish well. If you look at the rest of these verses, Paul mentions not only a person that doesn't finish well, but a church. Laodicea is clearly in good standing here. But if you fast forward 30 years, Laodicea is the last church that John writes to in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. And he says, look, you've grown rich. You're rich in this world. We could easily be that church. We have a lot of material wealth. But what does he say to that church? He says, I wanna, you make me sick. I want to throw up because I wish that you would make your choice, that you would either be, you would either be cold or hot. But you think that you're rich and you are poor, blind, miserable, and naked. Come and buy from me and I will clothe you and give you everything that you need. Um, What is this church like now? What are we going to be like in 30 years? What will the churches that we, God willing, plant be like and the ones that they plant in 30 years? Would that we as a church, as a family of churches that continue, God willing, to plant and to own the geography that God has called us to, being a people on mission and on fire, would that we could finish well better than we started, growing from glory to glory, ever brighter, ever brighter until that final day. Um, I opened our time comparing Paul and his laser focus on mission to John Creasy, Denzel Washington, and the man on fire. Spoiler alert, sorry, I know I spoiled one of the Narnia books for Michelle as she was, it's like my first sermon at Sojourn Heights and she was reading the book that I I spoiled and she was so mad at me, but she's here now. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Thanks for being faithful, Michelle. Um, spoiler alert: If you haven't seen the movie, Creasy gets Peter back. Um, he gets her back, but only in exchange for his life. The end of the movie is he—he he gives him. I mean, this bad to the bone dude who's been totally transformed just kills everybody, gets her back. The deal is though, her for me. It's an unbelievable picture of ransom and redemption. And uh, presumably he goes on, they they end the movie there mercifully, but presumably he goes on to torture and then death. Um, And you know, it reminds me of someone. um, It reminds me of someone that was a lot more bad, that was a lot more powerful than John Creasy, who could have said a word. He just could have said a word on that cross 2,000 years ago and called down tens of thousands of burning angels that would have just destroyed all opposition. He went beyond that on the cross and was upholding, was giving breath and life and causing blood to course through the veins of those who were crucifying him. At any moment, if he'd chosen to curse them, we wouldn't have any way to be with God. But he didn't. He he gave himself up for us, him for you him for me, Um, and Paul gets that, and it changes absolutely everything, Um, and I just want to say, what about you, what about us, will your life make sense of his death? Father, I I thank you for giving us so much, so much, that you sent us your precious Son that you love perfectly. I don't know perfect love. I only know perfect love because I know you, but I personally have never loved perfectly in my life, not for a second. But you, from all eternity past, were the perfect Father to your perfect Son. He was in your bosom. He was at your side, being loved by you and loving you constantly with your Holy Spirit. And you gave him up to be crushed, to live a life of poverty and temptation and rejection for us so that we could be brought into your family. And now he reigns, and he's using our suffering, especially, in our pain. And he's willing to use anything and everything in our lives so that we could be a people on mission for him and not for ourselves. I pray that living in light of that, that living in light of your kingdom, Lord, with every resource at our disposal, would be the way that we live, that that would characterize us as a people, that we would be a people on fire as Paul was a man on fire, as Jesus was a man on fire. Lord, would our lives make sense only in light of his death and his resurrection and his reign and his imminent return. And I pray it in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen.